podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25 and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two-Footed Podcast. It is Monday, the 12th of the 12th. Christmas is less than two weeks away. It's cold, it's frosty, but it's a beautiful day to be alive. We had a fascinating weekend of World Cup action. The quarterfinals are done. We have four teams left. Four more teams are gone home. I have to say I'm feeling quite happy about some of the teams that went home. Not to be too smug, but, you know, you should have been expecting it. Let's start with the first of those quarterfinals. Croatia won, Brazil won, Croatia go through 4-2 on penalties. I would suggest that this is a huge failure for Brazil. And I think given the fact that the manager was removed or chose to resign on the night of the game, I think he agreed. I think Tite has done a good job 
overall with Brazil. You look at the win percentage, the fact he did win the Copa America in uh, 2019. But he will be seen as a failure because he didn't win a World Cup. He got two opportunities to win the World Cup and was unable to do so. Now, I wouldn't put it on his doorstep. And at the suggestion of Guy, later this week, we're going to take a look at Brazilian football and the national team and why they have failed continually since 2002, since winning that World Cup in Japan and South Korea. They've been to one semi-final and they got walloped. And every other one has been a fairly massive failure. So we'll have a look at that later in the week. But Brazil are gone. Neymar scored a goal that I think was down to bad defending, but also credit to the Brazilian players. It was a nicely worked goal, but Borna Sosa should be doing much better. Petkovic equalises. And on to penalties we go. Neymar positions himself on the fifth penalty, wanting the glory, and doesn't get to take one. And Croatia are through. And you would be hard-pressed to say they didn't deserve it. They outplayed Brazil in the first half of that game. They matched them in the second half. And when they went behind, they got aggressive and went and found an equalising goal. And when it came to penalties, it was them that stood up and were mentally strong enough to get through. So congrats to Croatia, an incredible achievement, back-to-back semi-finals. Can they make it back-to-back finals? It's very possible. Three fi- three semi-finals in six World Cups. Croatia either go through to the semi-final or get knocked out in the group stage. There is absolutely no in-between with them. And you'd have to say, as long as Luka Modric and Mateo Kovacic and Josko Gvardiol continue to play the way they did against Brazil, and I thought Juranovic was absolutely outstanding as well, if those lads play like that again, they'll push Argentina. And Argentina came through a really tough game against the Netherlands. They went two up, Molina, and then a messy penalty. There was 17 minutes left, plus stoppage time. It looked like it was going to be game over. And then the game went mental. From 75 to what ended up being 102, before extra time, that 25 minutes is the best 25 minutes of this World Cup by a considerable margin. It had everything. It had goals. It had drama. It had needle. It had aggression. It had boiling points. It had crunching tackles. It had a referee losing complete control of the game. Veghorst scores in 83. Veghorst scores again in the 101st minute after a brilliantly worked free kick. Teon Koopminers, hats off, really, really intelligent. We go to penalties after a fairly stale extra time. And it is Argentina who hold their nerve. Uh, Van Dijk steps up first, takes a good penalty. It's a great save by Emmy Martinez. Berghaus steps up second. Again, it's a good penalty, but Emmy Martinez makes a great save. Messi and Paredes had scored to give Argentina a 2-0 lead. And even with Enzo Fernandez missing his penalty, Latour Martinez scores the last penalty and sends Argentina through. Messi's dream of winning a World Cup continues. And of, I suppose, the three players who have been held up as the best of the generation, now Neymar admittedly is a number of years younger than the other two, 
but he has often been compared to them. Well, Neymar is out, and he was awful in his his quarterfinal. Scored a goal, but a dreadful performance. Messi was otherworldly for 80 minutes in this game. He was incredible. And he stepped up and scored a great penalty in the shootout. And then Cristiano goes out as well. We'll come to him. But this game, this game had a bit of everything. And there's a historic rivalry between these nations that dates back to the 78 World Cup final. And I don't think the Netherlands have ever fully gotten over that. The fact that Johan Cruyff chose not to play in that World Cup, I think they've always had that what-if question. What if we'd had our best player? Well, they probably would have won the World Cup, but they didn't. And Argentina won that World Cup. There was a battle between these sides in Marseille in the 1998 World Cup, a game everybody remembers for Dennis Burkamp's incredible last-minute goal, taking down that long ball from Frank de Boer with an outrageous first touch, beating the defender and finishing past the goalkeeper. But that game was very bitter and bad-tempered as well. And I love it. And I love the fact that as soon as the penalty shootout was over, a lot of the Argentinian players rubbed it in the faces of the Dutch players we saw Denzel Dumfries sent off for his carry-on during the penalty shootout. And there could have been a couple more red cards. I mean, Leandro Paredes probably shouldn't still have been on the pitch to take a penalty. Uh, a horrendous tackle that he threw himself into. That was a yellow card offence. And then he fired the ball at the, the Argentine, or sorry, at the Dutch bench which cleared the Dutch bench and all of them entered the field of play. Uh, Van Dijk comes out of nowhere and absolutely bodies Paredes to the floor. He could well have been dismissed, but Paredes should have really been sent off at that moment. And the players that entered the field of play, they should all have been at least booked because that is the rule. Uh, As it was, the referee booked pretty much everybody uh, from the... Dutch side, he booked Timber. Uh, Dumfries was booked twice in the penalty shootout fiasco. Bergwijn, Depay, Berghaus, Lang and Veghorst were all booked. And for Argentina, Romero, Otamendi, Martinez, Acuna, Messi, Montiel, Paredes and Pazella all booked. A couple of coaches were booked as well. It is worth pointing out that uh, Vuk Veghorst was booked while he was still sitting on the bench in the first half for something that he said. And then he would come on and score two goals and was almost the hero. Uh, His first goal, brilliant header, but made a lot easier by the fact that he's six foot six and he was been marked by uh, Lissandro Martinez, who's, you know, five, eight, five, nine. Martinez could jump full height and Veghorst could stand still and still win the header. Um, so Argentina move on, and that is our first semi-final, Croatia versus Argentina. It's tomorrow, seven PM kickoff, UK time. Obviously, should be should be a really good game. Morocco won, Portugal nil. The real fairy tale of the World Cup continues. Yusuf Nasiri scores with a great header on forty-two, and while. Morocco only had 
26% of the ball, you never really felt like they were clinging on. And in fact, they should have won the game themselves on a breakaway late on when Portugal were committing everybody forward. Um, Walid Chadiri was sent off in stoppage time for two silly fouls in quick succession. Portugal threw on some forward players, but you never, again, never felt like they fully committed to it. It was it was a bit of a half-arsed attempt to chase the game, in my view. I didn't feel like they really committed entirely to trying getting back into it. Then you had three shots on target. They had one shot on target, I think, in the first 60 minutes. It was after four minutes. Bruno Fernandes hit the crossbar with an outrageous effort that may well have been a cross, but looked like a shot. But you didn't feel like they were ever really forcing Morocco to cling on for dear life. And remember, this is a Morocco team who went into the game with no Agard and no Mizrahi, both of whom are probably in the team of the tournament. And then Romain Saiz gets injured and has to go off. Now, there's a chance they're missing three quarters of their starting back four in the semi-final. The hope will be that Mizrahi and Agard are back. Saiz's tournament might be over. But the fact is, they played that game, all of it with two non-starters in their back four and most of the second half with three non-starters in the back four. Ashraf Hakimi's the only one there who's a regular starter. And Ashraf Hakimi going into the tournament is the one you would have looked at and thought, right, he defensively is the weak link. He has been incredible defensively this team have been incredible defensively and they're obviously helped out by an outstanding midfield uh Sofian Amrabat has been sensational I think uh Salim Amala has been very very good very impressive don't imagine he'll be staying at standard Liège for long I think he'll get a move but the one that's been the big surprise is Onahi who plays for Angers in France, 22 years of age, an absolute machine, endless energy, endless willingness to chase and harry and press and win the ball back, close space down, block off passing lanes. He will definitely be attracting the attention of top clubs. If you're a top club that wants to play a high-pressing style, he's exactly the type of player that you need. And if Liverpool were looking for, you know, a Jordan Henderson replacement, not necessarily as a starter, but someone that could be the fourth or fifth midfielder in a strong midfield group, this kid would make a ton of sense. He'd make sense for a lot of other clubs as well, but looking at it from a, a selfish point of view, I do think he's one they should keep an eye on. I don't think he'd cost a fortune. Angiers are not exactly a, a top dog. They're not somebody that's going to demand huge money. So he's definitely someone that's caught the eye. Amrabat's getting all the headlines, and, and rightly so. He has been tremendous. He he is another one that walks into the team of the tournament. You You could make a real argument that it is their entire back four and Amrabat. And then you pick whoever you want for the other six positions, the goalkeeper, the two other midfield players and the three in attack. 
Uh, but Amrabat is undeniably in the team of the tournament. So is Hakimi. If Agard hadn't missed that game, I think he would have been. Romain Seiss is worth a, a definite shout. And Mazraoui's been, I think, the best left-back going as well. So this is a team built on defensive principles, defensive understanding, aggression, reading the game, patience. And what I really like is that players drop out, next man up. You're injured, it's your chance. And players are stepping up. And we saw it with Yamik and Allah and how they how well they played coming into the team. We saw it as well when Sice had to go off. And you thought, that's going to be massive. He's been so important as sort of the leader of that defence. But Dari came on and was tremendous. Ashraf Dari, tremendous performance. Played from 57 minutes. And I think the game went to basically 100 minutes. So, you know, he plays nearly a full 45 And he was excellent, absolutely excellent. The whole team was good. Now, they've also got some injury concerns in attack. uh, Zayic and Buffal both getting knocks. Zayic went off because of his. So we'll wait and see what they have uh, in store come the semi-final. In that semi-final, they will face France. France 2, England 1. Chouameni opens the scoring on 17. Harry Kane equalises on 54. Olivier Giroud scores on 78. And Harry Kane misses a penalty to equalise on 83. France go through. England go home. And England will rue this because England were the better team on the day. France played about as badly as that team is capable of playing. And England still couldn't beat them. And the reason they couldn't beat them is because England couldn't create anything. If you look at the England chances in that game, the only notable real open play chance is the Maguire one in the first half. Sorry, Maguire, the Kane one in the first half, which comes from a defensive error by Deodupa Meccano, allows himself, gets the wrong side of Kane and allows Kane to spin him very easily. And Lloris comes off his line and makes a good save. Other than that, Bellingham had a half chance, a snatched volley that was pretty much straight above. Lloris was an easy save. Maguire has two headers. Both of them are offset pieces. One from a Henderson free kick and the other one is from either a Shaw or Foden corner, which I don't think he realises is as big a chance. Lloris comes to the ball and slips and is lying on the ground, and Maguire tries to head it back across, whereas I think if he heads it at goal, he potentially scores. I saw a lot of crowing that, you know, England had a higher XG. They did, because they got two penalties. They didn't create anything. Whereas you look at France, both of their goals come from open play. Giroud also missed a big chance minutes before scoring. Usman Dembele had a really good chance as well, where Mbappe, in the one time he got 1v1 with with, with Kyle Walker and took him on, roared past him, cut the ball back, Giroud dummied it and left it for Dembele, and Dembele didn't expect it. If he's expecting it, or if that's Griezmann, that's a goal. And then there's the Rabiot chance, which is just a simple ball played 
by Jules Kunde into the channel between centre-back and right-back. Walker's so terrified of Mbappe that he stayed too wide. He comes back across and Rabiot shoots first time on a half volley. If Rabiot has just a little bit of composure there and takes the ball down and draws Walker, he's slipping in Mbappe for a simple chance. But he drew a good save from Jordan Pickford, so fair play. So you've got all of those chances created in open play. Admittedly, the many one's not a big chance by any stretch. It's just a great cha- a great shot. But the Dembele chance, the Rabiot chance, and the two for Giroud, one of which he scored, they're all big chances that France created. England created one good chance in the game from open play, and it was largely down to a defensive error. Didn't create create anything. <clears throat> the one guy who looked like he was capable of creating something was Bikai Osaka. And Southgate took him off. And I didn't really understand Southgate's thought process behind the substitutions. So they he doesn't make a single substitution until the 79th minute. France score on 78 to go 2-1 up. When the game was 1-1, that was the time to go for it. Because France looked vulnerable, especially on the left side of the French defence. And you were screaming at the England players, just give it to Saka, give it to Saka. Because he was absolutely carving them up. Upa Meccano had an awful game. Teo Hernandez was dreadful, highlighted by the foul on Mason Mount to give away the second penalty. But the first change he makes is Henderson off, who'd been okay. I mean, he wasn't good. He wasn't bad. He was just okay. He was six out of 10. The best moment he had in the game was the free kick for the Maguire, um, the Maguire header. You know, his passing was quite sterile. He made a bunch of overlapping runs that didn't lead to anything. Defensively, he was okay. But again, he wasn't good. He wasn't bad. He was just okay. But why was he still on the pitch on 79 minutes? He brings on Mason Mount. Now, Mount wins the penalty. But let's be honest. He doesn't do anything to win the penalty. He just runs. The penalty is won by Teo Hernandez being an idiot. The other change he makes, he brings on Raheem Sterling for Bikayo Saka. And Saka was torturing France. He was England's best player by a country mile. Kane misses the penalty on 84. And a minute later, Rashford is on for Phil Foden. Marcus Rashford's been good in this competition should probably be trying to give him more than five minutes. We go into extra time. I think it's eight minutes is given. Then there's a stoppage in extra time, so it's going to go longer. He brings on Jack Grealish for John Stones on 98 minutes. There's about three minutes left, and that's the change he makes. England were crying out for somebody that could unlock a defence. And they brought on Mount. That's not his game. They brought on Sterling. It's not really his game. 
They brought on Rashford. It's not his game. And they brought on Grealish, which people think it's his game, but when have you seen him unlock a defence? A few times for Aston Villa, when they were finishing 17th. The two players in the England squad, capable and proven at unlocking defences, are Trent Alexander-Arnold and James Madison. James Madison didn't get a look-in during this competition. And as far as I can remember, Trent's only appearance was against Wales. And I think that's it. I think I'm right in saying they're the only minutes that Trent got in this competition. When did he make that substitution? Fifty-seven minutes into England versus Wales, Trent came on for Kyle Walker. That game went ninety-four minutes. So Trent played thirty-seven minutes of the World Cup, and Madison didn't kick a ball. Neither of them would have been brought if it was a 23-man squad. Neither of them would have been brought if not for media pressure. He was never going to play them in an important game. He brought Trent on when they were already tuning up against the Welsh, and it was quite clear the Welsh were awful. Madison and Trent could have made a huge difference. But... Gareth Southgate fundamentally is a footballing coward. So he never even considered them. We'll talk more about Gareth Southgate being a footballing coward later in the week. But for now, we will just point out that England are out because of England, not because of the referee, not because of anything else. They're out because of themselves. Their failure to create chances and their failure to convert from the penalty spot. I will say Harry Kane is getting quite a lot of abuse on social media. It is unwarranted. It is unwarranted. He was England's best player in this tournament from start to finish. He was excellent in that game against France, as he had been against Senegal, against Wales. He was the only English player that came out with any credit from the US game, and he was excellent against Iran. This was Kane's best performance in terms, best tournament in terms of performance for England. And... I've been thinking about the penalty since it happened. If you've watched Harry Kane play, you know that he likes to hit his penalties to his left, the goalkeeper's right. He likes to shoot back across his own body. Whip wraps his foot round it and whips it into the inside of the side netting. That's his go-to. No goalkeeper has faced more Harry Kane penalties than Hugo Lloris because they have played together for a decade or whatever at Spurs. So you would imagine that in the time since Harry Kane made his Tottenham breakthrough, since he established himself in that team, which was the 14-15 season. So this this is year eight or nine. This is year nine of Kane as the regular starter, but he was in the squad and he played 19 games the previous season. So you could say it's year 10 of him being in the Tottenham squad and training with Hugo Lloris every single day. 
10 years, maybe once a week, they might do penalties. Might take 10, might take 15. Well, that's, you know, somewhere between 500 and 750 across a season. And that's a low-balled estimate. And that's between 5,000 and 7,500 penalties that Kane may have taken against Lloris just in training. So Hugo Lloris knows what Harry Kane is going to do. And he knows Harry Kane wants to shoot to Kane's left, Lloris's right. So on the first one, I think Lloris overthinks it and thinks he's going to double bluff me here. He's going to go the other way because he knows I think he's going this side. He's going to go the other side, so I'll dive to the other side. So Lloris dives left, Kane puts the ball to Lloris's right. On the second one, Lloris can't go left again. He knows I have to go right this time. And Kane knows Lloris is going right this time. He's going to my left, his right. So I've got two options here. Either I change sides myself and I shoot the other way. Or I bury it in the top corner and he doesn't get close to it. And he chose the latter option. He chose to bury it. And he just hit it too hard. He got underneath the ball and he sent it sailing over the bar. But I do definitely believe that if there hadn't been an earlier penalty in that game, I think Kane scores and Lloris probably goes the wrong way. Because again, I think he would have thought he's going to try and double bluff me. He'll go there. He'll go to my left. He wants to go to his right. and I know he wants to go to his right. And he knows I know he wants to go to my right. So I'm going to go that way. He'll go the other way. So now I'll go the other way instead. I think if that's the second penalty, Kane scores it. But because there'd been one earlier and that little thing had played out, I think Kane just tries to bury it and it goes over. We've seen... England players missed penalties before. Gareth Southgate missed a notable England penalty before. Obviously, the three boys, Sancho, Saka and Rashford, missed penalties in the Euros final. Shout out to Stuart Pearce and Chris Waddle, who missed famous penalties in 1990. Harry Kane is not the first. He won't be the last. He's not the best to miss a penalty. He's not the worst to miss a penalty. He's just another player that missed another penalty. It's as simple as that. And it has nothing to do with him bottling the moment. It's a huge pressure moment. Stuart Pearce is one of the most mentally tough players the game has ever seen. And he missed a penalty. And he was a regular penalty taker for Nottingham Forest. And he missed one in a shootout. I'd back, Mar- back Marcus Rashford and Bakayo Saka to score most penalties. They miss penalties. It happens. I'd back Enzo Fernandez to take a penalty and score it. I'd back Virgil van Dijk to take a penalty and score it. They both missed penalties in the last couple of days. It just happens. In Kane's situation, it happened because of the familiarity of the opponent. Because the guy stood in front of him has stood in front of him for probably somewhere between five and 10,000 penalties over the last decade. Simple as that. 
France against Morocco. What a game that is going to be. What a run for Morocco. But let's not forget that they're not the only team that came out of their group. Croatia were in that group as well. These teams came out of Group F. Morocco top, Croatia second. And they have battled and fought their way to this stage. Croatia overcame Japan. Morocco overcame Spain. Croatia overcame Brazil. Morocco overcame Portugal. Everybody thought it was going to be Neymar versus Messi, Cristiano versus Mbappe. That's what everybody expected. And Messi's there and Mbappe's there, but the other two boys are gone home. And Cristiano Ronaldo goes home with arguably the most embarrassing World Cup legacy of any great player. Any truly great player. Eight goals, only five from open play, despite playing in five World Cups, despite being first and foremost, and in recent years, only a goal scorer. He's never scored a World Cup goal in the knockout phases. And since he has become the main guy for Portugal in a World Cup, the first for them was 2010, they've been very, very disappointing. Now, in their first World Cup that he featured in, they went out in group, they, they were in group D, they topped their group. Uh, he scored one goal in the group stage. Uh, he scored a penalty against Iran, the second in a 2 0 win. So, an, an irrelevant goal, really. That was the only goal he scored in the group stage, was the goal he scored in the tournament. They. Knocked out the Netherlands, knocked out England on penalties, and then lo- and then lost to France in the semi-final. And he was a, a non-factor, really. The most notable thing he did was get Wayne Rooney sent off. But he wasn't the main guy in that Portugal team. That was a team of veterans. That was Deco, was Figo. That was the last embers of that great Portuguese team that had popped up in the 90s. And then the likes of Deco and Manish and players like that that came through and solidified it. Cristiano was, was a winger, he was a fringe player. He was in, in the team, but not someone that they really relied on. But 2010, the team had become his. And he had established himself as one of the, the top players in the world. Coming off the back of that World Cup really is where his explosion began. But 2010, he's the main guy for Portugal. He gets one goal. And in that tournament there in Group G, he doesn't score against the Ivory Coast. He scores the seventh goal in a 7-0 win against North Korea. That's it. That's his contribution for the World Cup. They get out of the group. They go out to Spain in the round of 16. And that's him done for that World Cup. One goal, the seventh goal in a 7-0 win. So he scored against Iran and North Korea. That's his World Cup legacy thus far. 
in 2014. Again, he scores one goal. Portugal are in a group with Germany. They obviously went on to win the World Cup, so a good team. But the USA and Ghana, well, these are teams that Portugal should be beating, surely. Um, It doesn't score, doesn't turn up against Germany. Doesn't turn up against the US. And going into the final game, Portugal, unless the US get absolutely destroyed by Germany, Portugal are out. And he pops up and he scores the winner against Ghana. So again, they win the game, but it's a meaningless goal because they're out. We move to 2018, which is his best World Cup, apparently. Um, A World Cup in which he scores four goals. So in the group stage, Portugal are in Group B. Uh, He scores a hat-trick against Spain in the opening game. A penalty. Then he scores a go-ahead goal to put them 2-1 up, and then he gets a late equaliser. So there's the first really important contribution he's made at a World Cup as a goal scorer, because he doesn't offer anything else and hasn't for a long time. That's his fourth World Cup, and he finally has his World Cup moment. Then he scores the winner against Morocco in the second game. So now he's had another one. He doesn't score against Iran. And then they get to the groups, to the knockout stages. And uh, they go out 2-1 to Uruguay, and he's awful in the game. Complete no-show. So we move on to 2022. He gets a fifth bite at the apple. And again, he manages one goal. So they're in Group H. They're playing Ghana. And he dives and wins a penalty. And he scores that penalty. And that's the last contribution he made. It was the first real contribution he made in that game and the last contribution he made in this tournament. They win that game 3-2. Joe Felix and Rafael Leao win them the game. Bruno Fernandes wins them the game against Uruguay. He tries to claim a goal that he clearly didn't touch tried to get Bruno involved in the lie, tried to force the Portuguese FA to appeal on his behalf for him to be given a goal, only for Adidas to come out and say, we put senses in the ball, we know if someone touched it, and he didn't touch the ball. Um, He plays against South Korea and is awful. And then he gets dropped for Switzerland. And Portugal beat them 6-1. He comes on with 20 minutes to go or however long, and Thinks he scores, but he's a mile offside. And other than that, doesn't do a whole lot other than assault a fan with a football trying to take a free kick. And then he's left out of the team for the Morocco game. He comes on, he plays 40 minutes of the guts thereof and was awful. Didn't do anything. And that's his World Cup legacy. His World Cup legacy, his two great World Cup moments are a hat-trick against Spain in a draw in a group stage game and the winner against what was at that time fairly average Morocco team in the group stage. And that's it. Five World Cups and that's the best he could come up with. 
for a player who's done what he's done in the game, he's got to be embarrassed by that World Cup legacy. He has to be. And now he goes home. Clubless and with his international future up in the air. He says he will take time to think about it. Um, It's been widely reported that he threatened to leave the tournament and go home, having had a tantrum after being told he was left, being left out for Switzerland. The manager has stood in front of him and said that didn't happen, but we know it did happen because that is who he is. He would rather have played from the start against Switzerland, scored and lost 2-1, than have the team win 6-1 without him. Because that's who he is. And in the last two months, he has done irreparable damage to his legacy. From the walk-off against Spurs, to the Pierce Morgan interview, to his behaviour at this World Cup, and his performances at this World Cup. And people were willing to overlook the performances and the behaviour and the attitude for years beforehand. And now they no longer can because he's not worth it anymore. He doesn't offer anything on the pitch anymore. So he will continue his career somewhere, probably in Saudi Arabia. And no one's going to pay any attention. And it will kill him. Now he'll get the adoration of the people there. And I'm sure their local newspapers or their national newspapers every day will have front page Cristiano Ronaldo news. But no one outside is going to care. Nothing against the people of Saudi Arabia. But their league is not of the required standard for anyone to really care. Let's take a break. When we come back, we've got some Newcastle chat, we've got some news, and we've got three days worth of gossip to get through. So we'll be seeing you in a second. Right, welcome back. So, Newcastle United in the 2022-2023 Premier League season. Now, what we know about this season thus far is that a number of teams have underperformed massively. Liverpool, Chelsea, West Ham, Leicester City. But when teams underperform, it opens up the opportunities for teams to overperform. Now, one team that overperformed is obviously Arsenal. Top of the league going well, very, very excited about themselves. The other team who've overperformed massively is Newcastle. Newcastle currently sit third in the Premier League table. And all things considered, they'll be very, very happy with how their year has gone. They are seven points off top. Now, they have played a game more than both Manchester City and Arsenal, but they're only two points behind City. Defensively, they've got the joint best defensive record in the league. And in truth, because they've played an extra game over Arsenal, they actually have statistically the best defensive record in the league. They've conceded 11 and scored 29. That's a really nice balance to have. They've had a strange season in terms of how the results have gone. They beat Nottingham Forest 2-0 on the opening day. Fabian Sharon and um, Callum Wilson with the goals. And then they went on a run of six games without a win. 
However, they only lost one of those games. They drew nil-nil away to Brighton. They got comprehensively outplayed and somehow got a draw, largely because Brighton struggled to score goals. Then they played Manchester City. They went 1-0 behind. Ilke Gundogan scored on five minutes. And you thought, here we go again. City are going to wipe the floor with them. And the exact opposite happened. From about 20 minutes into this game until about 55 minutes, but a minute or two after Kieran Trippier scored Newcastle's third, Newcastle absolutely destroyed City. Absolutely tore them apart. And Bruno Gomerich put on an absolute clinic on how to play in central midfield in the Premier League. Almiron scored, Wilson scored, and Trippier scores a great free kick. And then they took their foot off the gas and allowed City back in and lost track of Kevin De Bruyne. He began to run the game. Haaland scores and then Bernardo Silva scores and it's 3-3. And City get out of there with a point. Then they played Wolves and they drew 1-1 away. A late, late goal by Alan St. Maximum rescuing a point after they had been, I think, unlucky in certain moments in the game where they potentially could have had a penalty and they missed a couple of half-decent chances. This was before we knew that Wolves had issues. Then they went to Anfield. They went 1-0 up. Alexander Isak scoring his first goal for the club. Then Firmino equalises in 61, and then they lose to a late, late Fabio Carvalho goal. And that's their only defeat of the season so far. They draw at home with Crystal Palace. They draw at home with Bournemouth. That's one that will be disappointing to them. They'd gone 1-0 down, but they came back and Essex scored a penalty. Then they went and they hammered Fulham 4-1. Now, Chalab had been sent off after eight minutes ruined. This is a contest. But Newcastle were ruthless. Wilson scores, Almiron gets two, Longstaff scores, De Cordova-Reed gets one back as a consolation, but it's all too little too late. Then they hammer Brentford. Bruno Gomerich gets two, Murphy scores, Almiron scores, and Ethan Pinnock own goal. Um, Ivan Tony had scored on 54 minutes, and, and there was a little moment, because it was only 2-0 at that point, there was a little moment where you thought, Newcastle might bottle this, but they scored again two minutes later and then ran away with it. But by the end of the game, Brentford were throwing goals into their own net. They got a nil-nil draw away to United. It was a fairly dull game. Then they beat Everton 1-0. Almiron scores again. Then they beat Spurs 2-1 away. Wilson and again Almiron. It was a great win. Then they hammer Aston Villa. Wilson scores two. Jolington scores. And Almiron scores. Then they went and they beat Southampton 4 0 away. Again, Almiron scores. Wood scores. Willock scores. And Bruno Gamera scores a late one. And then they beat Chelsea 1 0 at home. Joe Willock scores the only goal of the game. It's a fairly dull game, but it's a very good win. Even though Chelsea are not particularly good at the moment, they're in flux. They're, well, they're a bit of a shambles, really, Chelsea, but we've talked about them. We'll talk about them more as the season comes back. But That run, five wins in a row, seven wins out of eight, now unbeaten in 10, only one defeat all season. That's really, really positive. Really, really positive. Now, in the summer, they obviously went and spent a lot of money. They brought in Matt Target for 15 million. They'd had him on loan. They liked what they saw. They brought him in. He hasn't really played. 
They brought in Nick Pope for 10 million. It was a great signing. Sven Botman for 35 million. If you're picking a team of the season so far, he's in it. He's having the season that people think Lissandra Martinez is having. That's how good he's been. Whereas Martinez has been absolutely ragged in certain games. He's been outstanding. And they brought in Isak for 63 million. They also brought in Karan Cole, who will join in January. Um, but 300 grand, I think there's add-ons to it. But they spend a lot of money in the summer. You're looking at about 125 million. But the results speak for themselves. Now, I don't believe it's sustainable for them. And I think when teams have a bit more footage of them in the second half of the season, it'll catch up with them. We saw them have a great run in the second half of last season. And by the end of the season, it caught up with them and they lost some games they would have expected to win based on the form they'd been in. But you'd look ahead at January, no need to touch the goalkeeping position. Pope has been excellent this season. They've got Darlow. They've got Lloris Karius in. They're, they're solid enough there for now. Um, Kieran Trippier is playing well at right back. Dan Byrne is playing pretty well at left back. Shar and Botman have been very, very good. Botman is outstanding. Long term, you're going to want to upgrade on everyone in that back for Bar Botman. If you want to be a title winning team, Botman is the only one that can be there. Uh, in midfield, I think this is where they need to maybe do a bit of business in January. So you've got Gamerish. He has been otherworldly, a phenomenal player. They're largely playing Jolington as one of the eights and Sean Longstaff as the other. And that's where I think they could upgrade is on Longstaff. Not to say he hasn't been good this season because he has, but that's one position I do think can be immediately upgraded. I think Longstaff becomes a good squad player from there. Joe Willock has played a lot as well. It tends to be two. So it, it, it tends to be two of those three. Jolington, Longstaff and Willock. I think Longstaff and Willock are really good squad players. If they're your fourth and fifth or fifth and sixth midfielders, I think you're in good shape. Jolington, I'm not 100% convinced, is a starter. If you want to be an elite Premier League team, I think he's probably your fourth midfielder. So if you're rolling out in a rotation game, maybe in a cup, Longstaff as the six, maybe, Willock and Jolington, I think that's quite strong and nicely balanced. But I think you've got to get two eights. Now, for January, I'd only look for one. You don't want to disrupt too much. So one ball-winning type of eight to go with Gimerish and Jolington. I think that sets the midfield up for the second half of the season. And then in the summer, you go and find uh, the other eight, maybe the more attack-minded one. So let's say you get someone like Manu Kone from Gladbach in January. So you go Kone, Gimerish, Jolington. And then in the summer, you upgrade on Jolington. I think then you're going to be in really good shape. In attack, Almiron is in the form of his life. He's got eight goals this season. He is playing really, really well. You'd like to see him create a bit more for others, but he tends just to be the one that gets on the end of things. Uh, This is his best goal-scoring return for Newcastle. 
He did once score eight goals in a, in a season, but he played 42 games in that season. And only four of the goals came in the Premier League. Uh, this time he's got eight and 15 in the Premier League, eight and 16 across all competitions. Um, he's been He's been tremendous. He really has been tremendous. And for a player who's in his fourth full season to finally become the player they thought they were buying. It's really good to see. Now, whether it's a flash in the pan or not remains to be seen. He turns 29 in February. But if he continues playing like this, he's going to be getting a big new contract and he's, you know, he's going to start attracting a lot more hype. Um, The other wing is St. Maximum when fit, but he's not really been fit this season. He's only started four games in the league. I think that's the other spot you could look to upgrade. Now, not that I don't like St. Maximum, I do, but I don't think he's consistent enough and he's not fit enough. doesn't stay fit long enough. He always picks up these hamstring injuries. If you could have him as your third winger, so you had Almiron on one side, somebody else the other side, and then St. Maximum as the cover for both, I think that's pretty strong. Uh, in the number nine position, they've got Isak. They'll hopefully have him back in February from this injury. And they've got Wilson. Wilson's having a good season. They've also got the presence of Chris Wood, who has done okay. I mean, he's playing off the bench and he's coming on, you know, to eat minutes up late in games. And if they're behind, he's a great target man. If they're ahead, he's a great outlet because he can take the ball in and hold it up and slow things down. So I would say for January, you're looking for probably one wide forward and one in midfield. Now, if I were them, I'd be looking at Mikhailo Mudrik from Shakhtar and Manu Kone from Gladbach. I think those two would fit really nicely into that Newcastle team. I think they're both very, very good players, young players. I think they're both 21, loads of potential to develop. I think those two could elevate Newcastle to another level. Now, I don't think they're a top four team this season. Um, I think in all likelihood, they'd probably finish sixth or seventh. So they could, you know, that that puts them either in the Europa League or the Conference League. And I think that's a good step forward. And then in the summer, you go out and I think you look to address an upgrade on Shar, an upgrade on Jolington, and then you go again. And then maybe in the January, you look to upgrade on Burn or Trippier in the following summer, you upgrade the other one. And maybe upgrade on Pope at that point as well. You know, you get two good years out of him and then maybe you look for a top echelon goalkeeper. But all things being equal, you do have to credit Newcastle with how they've carried themselves so far since getting all of the money. They haven't gone out and splurged. They haven't been foolish. They haven't done a Robinho signing or anything like that. They have just brick by brick, began to build something. And I think it's been really impressive. So I would say in the summer, in in the January, ball-winning box-to-box midfielder and a wide forward, more of a creative winger, which Mudrik can be for you. Someone that will really stretch the play down that side. I think you'll be in business. They're going to be heavily reliant, though, on fitness 
up front because we know Wilson has a history of injury. You look at Callum Wilson across his Premier League career and 13 games, 20 games, 28 games, 30 games, 35 games in his last season of Bournemouth, but he didn't play well. Since joining the Toon, 26, only 18 last year, 11 this year. They need him to play 25 Premier League games, 25 Premier League starts. Or they need Isak to come back and hit the ground running. And I said before they signed Isak and when they signed Isak, I think of of the young number nines around, take out Erling Haaland and obviously don't count Mbappe. But when you look at you know Darwin Nunes, Dusan Vlahovic, Viktor Osman, Isak, and whoever else you want to throw into that category, Goncalo Ramos, I think he's got the most potential from that group. I think he's the one with the highest ceiling. But I also think he's the one with the biggest potential bust factor. In part injuries, in part his skill set is so wide ranging that he might just become somebody who's kind of good at everything but not great at any one thing rather than some of the others who are just kind of great at one or two things and then average to poor at a bunch of other things, but they're super effective. He might become a bit ineffective if he doesn't develop the right way. But um, certainly, if, if everything goes well, he could be he could be great at everything. Uh, that's the kind of talent he has. Uh, so that's Newcastle. And tomorrow, then, we will be looking at Nottingham Forest. So that might take a while. Um, then Southampton on Wednesday, Spurs Thursday, West Ham Friday, and then Wolves on Monday. Um, because that, like that could be that could be an hour by itself. Uh, right, moving on then. Manchester City are considering plans to expand the Etihad to more than 60,000. So the current capacity is 43, sorry, 53,400. The club said their ambition was to develop the site into a world-leading sport and entertainment venue. What their actual objective is, in my opinion, the cynic in me tells me, it's an attempt to wash even more money through the club, to further financially dope the club, because City can't sell out the current stadium, like not even close. They give away thousands of tickets every week to local schools. Now, that's a good thing. That is a good thing. But there's still thousands of empty seats every week. And you add another 7,000 seats. Like, there's no there's no waiting list for a city season ticket. There's no queue to get in. You can stroll up and pay on the gate and you're in. To me, it's just an attempt to further route their way around the rules govern- governing the finances of football. But, you know, nobody's going to do anything to stop them because... Apparently, this type of thing is okay. Uh, Armando Brogia might well be done for the season. Graham Potter says it does not look positive after he suffered a serious knee injury during a friendly against Aston Villa. He collided with Ezri Konzi and Ezri Konza during a match in Abu Dhabi, was left holding his right knee and screaming in pain. He was taken off 
on a stretcher. Uh, it does not look good. That could potentially be season ending. So fingers crossed it's not. That is a very, very talented young player. And I think we'll all hope that we get to see him play again as soon as possible. We'll do the gossip and we'll be done for today. Arsenal could revive their interest in Juventus's Serbian striker, Dusan Vlahovic, following the knee injury sustained by Gabriel Jesus. Even if Jesus is out for the rest of the season, they're not going to go and spend 70 million on another striker. They're just not. They can't afford to do that to begin with. Um, Juventus will be willing to offer Vlahovic to Atletico Madrid in a swap deal for Jeff Felix. Now, I don't believe that to be true, but that is something that could work on the pitch. Vlahovic would be very, very well fitted to a Simeone team as the nine. Jeff Felix would be very, very good at Juventus with Chiesa. The problem is that he needs a nine and so does Chiesa and you're taking away the nine to get Felix. So I wouldn't be surprised if Juve tried to buy Jeff Felix or get him on loan with an obligation to buy. But I don't think they'll give up Vlahovic. Arsenal are an option for Leroy Sané if he does not sign a contract extension by the end of next season. I doubt it. Like, the wages he's on, he's on 400 grand a week. Arsenal aren't going to pay that. They've gotten rid of the overpaid, underperforming winger uh, players that they had. I don't think they're going to want to add another huge earner who's on much more than any of the current lot. Barcelona are ready to sign Ruben Neves in January, but manager Xavi is not convinced of his quality. Okay. Leicester have put a £60 million price tag on James Madison. Now, this is Football Insider, so probably garbage. But he's got 18 months left in his contract. They're not going to be able to do too much if someone comes in with £45 million. Atletico Madrid admire former Spain manager Luis Enrique as a potential se- successor to Diego Simeone, but could face competition from Manchester United for his services. How do these people write these stories and think anybody's actually going to take them seriously? Seriously. Like, they've just appointed a manager. He's had 15 games in the league in charge. They backed him to the point where they're now broke um, in terms of cash in the bank. They're not going to fire him anytime soon. They probably can't afford to. Simeone replacing, or Enrique replacing Simeone would be quite the culture shock to Atletico's players and Atletico's fans. Manchester United will open contract talks with Diogo Delo on his return. He's probably been the most consistent player all season, so it makes sense. Fiorentina's France forward, Randall Colomuani, who is valued at £26 million, is being tracked by Liverpool, Tottenham and Atletico Madrid. I wonder if they've mixed up stories here because Muani plays for Eintracht Frankfurt, not Fiorentina. And it's Sofian Amrabat who plays for Fiorentina, who's been linked to those three clubs for that kind of money. So I wonder if they've just muddled their stories. Real Madrid have approached Benfica about the potential signing of Enzo Fernandez. Poland midfielder Matthias Glish is in talks with DC United, coached by Wayne Rooney, over a potential move from Leeds. That'd be a good move for everybody, I think. Juventus are ready to sell Weston McKenney and have valued him at £26 million. 
Chelsea and Tottenham have both been linked. He's not good enough to play for them. But for someone like Leeds, if they were selling Glish, that, that would be a clever signing. Um, Inter Milan's Italian defender Alessandro Bastoni says Antonio Conte tried to sign him in the summer. I don't think he will leave anytime soon. I think he might be a lifer there. Everton are exploring a £35 million move for Ishmael Assar. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could see that making sense. Eddie Howe wants to extend the contract of Loris Karius, who's there on a short-term deal. Chelsea will sign Dinamo Moscow and Russian midfielder Arsene Sakarian if sporting sanctions and money transfer measures are changed. Um, they're not going to be changed anytime soon. And the fellow reporting it is, well, let's be honest, he is an absolute spoofer. So... The, this BBC article is linking to what I believe is a Russian website who cite this spoofer who writes for the Standard, London Even Standard. So, no, not having, not having a word of it. Um, Nottingham Forest will want to sign Union Berlin and Suriname forward Geraldo Becker in January. Do they want to sign him? Or do Olympiacos want to sign him and they're going to use Forrest as a vehicle to sign him for Olympiacos? Now, he's having a really good season. Um, he's got seven goals in 15 games in the Bundesliga. He's, he's stepped up after one uh, E left. I just, I don't know that I buy that one. Uh, moving on then to Sunday's. Barcelona could finalise a deal to sign N'Golo Kante, whose contract runs out during the summer, or sorry, in the summer, during the January window, depending on his recovery from a hamstring injury. We're not reading about AC Milan and Hakim Zayic. Tottenham could look to sign Stefan de Vrij from Inter Milan in the summer. He's out of contract, so he could be a clever signing. He knows Kante's system. He has looked painfully slow this season. Tottenham, Juventus, Inter Milan, Atletico Madrid are all interested in Alexis McAllister. Unsurprising, though he did sign a new contract recently. Eric Ten Hag was willing to let Cristiano Ronaldo leave in August, but multiple clubs rejected the chance to sign the 37-year-old, who has now left the Old Trafford Club, for 80 grand a week. So United were going to pay 420 grand a week for him to go and play for somebody else. That's how desperate Ten Hag was to get rid of him. And nobody wanted him. Manchester United have renewed their interest in Kim Min-Jae, but face competition from Real Madrid for the 26-year-old who has a £38 million release clause. I, I would say Napoli will move heaven and earth to um, get him to sign a new deal without a release clause. Arsenal and Chelsea have both expressed interest in signing Wolf Saha. He, again, like others, is out of contract in the summer. Will be a clever signing for somebody. Newcastle top candidates to sign Milan Skriniar. Skriniar and Botman could be very, very good. I don't think they're top candidates. I think PSG are probably top candidates. Chelsea and Liverpool are both interested in signing Sander Burge. No. Uh, Juventus have joined Inter, Inter Milan 
in monitoring the situation of Chris Smalling. Look, Smalling has done well at Roma, but let's let's settle down here. Top clubs shouldn't be looking at him. Uh, Sevilla are interested in 22-year-old Andrew's midfielder, Asadine Unahi, who is impressing for Morocco at the World Cup. Uh, he'd be a very Sevilla signing, to be fair. Borussia Dortmund do not want to sell Thomas Mounier in January. I'd happily sell him in January. Portugal left-back Rafael Guerrero is likely to leave Borussia Dortmund in the summer. I don't know what his contract situation is, but I think there'll be a lot of clubs who will be looking at him. Uh, Bayer Leverkusen director Simon Rolf says the club are very relaxed about the future of Jeremy Fringpong, who has been linked with Manchester United. United don't need a right-back. If they just commit to Delow and you've got Brandon Williams as a backup, you're fine. Just figure out the rest of your team first. Jeremy Frimpong's really good. Really good. Uh, moving on then to today's gossip, which is Paris Saint-Germain are willing to make Marcus Rashford one of football's best paid players. I think he's already on about 300 grand a week. Uh, Eric Ten Hag says Manchester United will exercise the options to extend the deals of Rashford and Delow until 2024. That's expected. I think Luke Shaw is probably going to get the same type of treatment. Uh, the Brazilian Football Federation planned to ask Pep Guardiola if he would be interested in becoming national team manager at the end of the season. It has long been rumoured that Pep's dream job is to be manager of Brazil. Long, long, long been rumoured. And it would make a ton of sense. However, he did just sign a new contract to stay with City until 2025. So my guess on Pep is he stays at City. He leaves in the summer 2025. He takes a year off from football to recharge because he'll be 54 by then. And he's talked about how draining he finds the job at times. I think he takes a year off, does whatever it is Pep does in his time off. And then I think he takes an international job after the next World Cup. And that might be the last we see of Pep, the club manager. He might well manage a couple of international teams, potentially Brazil, maybe Spain, maybe the USA. But I think he um, I think he stays with City till 2025 and then takes a year off. Chelsea, Manchester United and Manchester City are have submitted offers for um, Jasko Gradiol. No, they haven't. They haven't. It's absolute nonsense. It's a made-up story by some spoofer in France looking for a bit of attention. Juventus are prepared to let three players leave in order to fund a move for Mason Mount. Liverpool are in the running to sign Herving Lozano. No, they're not. Jeff Felix's agent has already held talks with Chelsea and Manchester United. Hopes Aston Villa and Newcastle will speak about their interest in the player. Um, the the Villa thing is interesting. Would make no sense at all for his career. But it could be a lot of fun. Arsenal have joined the list of clubs. Yeah, the Arsenal can't afford him. Arsenal are also keen on Mikhailo Mudrik. And that is their number one target. But I think the price could be too high for him for January for them. Juventus could look to sign Mason Mount and let Adrian Rabio, Leandro Paredes and Weston McKenney leave to raise funds. If I'm not mistaken, Paredes is only there on loan, so he, they're not going to raise anything 
by getting him out the door. Yeah, he's on loan. Rabio was at a contract in the summer, so he's got no value to them, even coming off a good World Cup. So you're going to get the McKenna, which isn't going to go much in the way of funding Mason Mount. Benfica president Rui Costa says that key players, including, oh, they will not allow key players, including Gonzalo Ramos, to leave unless their buyout closes them out. For January, that'll be the case. In the summer, they'll they'll negotiate. Newcastle are hoping to sign Christian Pulisic, while Arsenal and Manchester are also monitoring the situation. He would fit that left-sided role. He would fit that left-sided role. Um, Newcastle will allow Jamal Lachelle's Jamal Lewis and Matt Ritchie, as well as Ryan Frazier, to leave in January. Someone will get a really good left back with Jamal Lewis. Mets and Mali midfielder Bubakar Traore is expected to meet clauses in his loan move to turn his 9.5 million switch into a permanent deal during the second half of the season. He has looked impressive whenever I've seen him so far this season. So I do think that one makes a lot of sense. And that is it. That is me for today, folks. Thank you, as always, for listening. I will see you tomorrow. Goodbye. Podcast Network.